0: Good morning. This morning the first reading is taken from Romans chapter 12 verses 14 to 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The second reading is from Amos chapter 1 and chapter 5. The word of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah, and in the days of King Jeroboam, son of Jeresh of Israel, Two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds wither and the top of Carmel dries up. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil and love good. And establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Chosen. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the offerings of well being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing
1: stream. Thank you, Roseanne. Simon's gonna come share the word with us this morning now. Um, Those of you in the chat, as always, we ask you to keep your comments until the end, um, but please do join in.
2: Thank you, Dawn. Thank you, Roseanne and everyone else who's already contributed to the service today. So imagine with me for a moment that you've been invited to address the next cabinet meeting in Downing Street and you've got 10 minutes to say whatever you think they might need to hear. What would you want to say? Maybe you'd want to tell them what a wonderful job they've all been doing. Maybe you'd want to congratulate them on delivering Brexit. Well, maybe. Uh, But maybe you'd want to praise the furlough scheme that kept so many people out of poverty through the pandemic. Or maybe you'd want to congratulate them on the Everyone In scheme that has pioneered a housing-first approach to tackling homelessness, proving that if you give someone somewhere safe to sleep, it becomes so much easier to address the issues of addiction or poor mental health that are keeping them trapped on the streets. Or maybe you might want to point to the climate crisis, mixing praise for the achievements of COP26 with an urgency that more needs to be done in order to avoid suffering on a global scale. But perhaps you might want to take a moment to speak about the rising level of inequality in our country with the gap between the poor and the rich growing wider each year. Or you might choose to highlight the recent accusations of corruption and remind them that public leadership is also public service to be exercised in the interest of the common good and not the privileged few. What would be on your list, I wonder? Well, welcome to the world of the prophet Amos whose little book we find buried near the tail end of the Hebrew Bible in our Christian ordering. In it, we find his message to the ruling elite of northern Israel. And despite being written some 2,700 or so years ago, I think it has much to say to the world we live in. Amos had a relatively short active period as a prophet, just about kind of five years in the mid eighth century BCE. The situation in Israel at that point was that the United Nation achieved under David and his son Solomon had fractured into two, known as the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. In a situation that sounds familiar to those who follow the arguments for Scottish independence, the Northern Kingdom was resistant to being ruled by an elite based in the Southern capital city of Jerusalem. And so the nation had split. I don't think they had a referendum. It just kind of happened as the children of uh, the two sons of Solomon took part of the kingdom each, but but they'd split. And so we, we have now a Northern monarchy based in the North as well as the Southern monarchy based in the South. The King of the North, at the time of Amos, was called King Jeroboam II. We heard about him briefly in the reading just now. And actually, under his leadership, the kingdom had prospered. Uh, the devolution from Jerusalem had gone surprisingly well, and they'd been successful in battle, you know, striking good alliances overseas. Um, they'd enjoyed a long period of peace within their borders and had experienced something of a revival of artistic and commercial development. As Harold Macmillan might have put it to them, they'd never had it so good. Amos, meanwhile, was what those Northerners might have called uh, a soft Southerner. He was from a family of shepherds and sycamore fig farmers in the town of Tekoa, which was probably near Bethlehem, not far from Jerusalem in the south. And as such, he was an outsider to the world of the prophets, He wasn't the son of a prophet. He wasn't educated as a religious leader, but he was burning with a sense of injustice and a belief that the world could and should be a better place. Amos would probably have had a hard job getting uh, a fair hearing had he just walked up the road to Jerusalem to deliver his message. But his calling to deliver a message of judgment, not in his own land, but to the ruling elite of the northern kingdom, was, shall we say, a tough assignment. But the fact that he wasn't part of the old boy's network of ancient Israelite prophets isn't something that he sees as a disadvantage. Rather, he claims that his his outsider status, his rural background, gives his message a special authenticity because he sees himself representing God's desire to break in to the established patterns of society in Israel, to speak new words that had not been heard before. So, with his strange southern accent and his lowly social status, Amos arrives in the north to subvert expectations of what a prophet should be. And this is something which, from his point of view at least, is all to the good. It just adds punch to his message. Sometimes you need a new and different voice to challenge the ossified assumptions of the elite. As a prophet, Amos was building on the ministry of those who had gone before. And we meet him in our reading today about a century on from the time of Elijah that we were looking at with Luke last week. You may remember that Elijah's big thing in his ministry was um, challenging religious syncretism. This is the tendency to adopt a kind of pick and mix approach to religious belief and ideology. Elijah, a hundred years before the time of Amos, had used his prophetic ministry to keep calling people back to the worship of God and away from the temptations to worship the Baal gods. His famous standoff, with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in the northern kingdom is the stuff of legend and Sunday school stories. You remember him competing with them to summon fire from heaven. Uh, Although I have to say my memory of hearing this story when I was a kid in Sunday school is that the bloody self mutilation of the Baal prophets and their eventual mass murder at Elijah's hands often gets a little bit glossed over. But anyway, Amos... We're 100 years on, he's taking prophecy in a different direction. He's not so concerned about the purity of people's worship. He's far more concerned about the effects of people's religious belief on the poor and the disadvantaged. In a kind of parable of this sermon, when I arrived here this morning, I opened my post, as I, I tend to do, and there was a, a handwritten envelope. And I always think, oh gosh, a handwritten envelope, what's gonna be in that? And, and sure enough, there was some information that had been sent to us by uh, one, of, one of the far more theologically conservative churches here in our great city, uh, for me to pass on to everybody uh, a series of lectures on the rightness of faith. I think Elijah would have approved of uh, the content of that envelope. I'm ashamed to say I've recycled it. I'm more with Amos. Where are we at with justice? Because Amos knew that whilst one segment of society in the Northern Kingdom may have never had it so good, There were swathes of other Northerners who were getting poorer by the minute. And maybe that is what faith should be about. Well, income inequality is nothing new. And a working class shepherd farmer from Takoa had come to tell the religious and social elite of the North that their religious purity meant nothing to God if it was accompanied by corruption and oppression of the poor and the vulnerable. In fact, the message is harsher than that. The message of Amos was that unless there was a dramatic shift in society, unless justice rolled down across the nation to bring release and relief to those who were suffering in poverty and subjugation, then the status quo would not be allowed to continue. And the wealthy and the powerful would be laid low for their indifference to the needs of others, regardless of how great their worship and offering and theological purity may have been. And here I think we have to consider a couple of questions which are interrelated. One is a question of judgment. What does it mean to say that people are under God's judgment? The other question, I think, is a question of geography. And that may be the easier question. So we'll start with that. Uh, In chapter one of the book of Amos, we hear the beginning of Amos's message. And thank you to Roseanne for reading that to us. Amos says, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds wither and the top of Carmel dries up. Well, the whole north-south divide here is not something we can ignore if we're going to understand what's going on. The Lord roars from Zion and speaks from Jerusalem, is telling us that the Lord is speaking from the south. But those who hear that message are the people of the Carmel Mountains, which are in the north. It was, of course, on Mount Carmel that a hundred years or so earlier, Elijah had had his fiery competition with the prophets of Baal. And Amos is the deliverer of that word from the Lord. He is a hot blast from the south, sent to scorch the north, to blow away their hypocrisy and collusion with injustice. However, we also need to understand that this text, like all of the books in the Old Testament, only comes down to us because it was preserved in the south. Because within a generation of Amos's ministry, the Assyrians had invaded the northern kingdom and laid waste to it. We don't have much that comes down to us from the north. It all kind of got lost. The only remnant that survived the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom in the 8th century, the only remnant that survived of the original 12 tribes of Israel was the lone tribe of Judah in the south with Jerusalem as its capital. So a text like this, the Book of Amos, which offers a reason, an explanation of why it was that the north deserved what eventually came upon them. That would have been quite a popular text in the south, which for a while at least escaped the heat of invasion and judgment. You can see why they might have kept it. But it would also have functioned as a warning to the southern kingdom, cautioning them by proxy that if they became as unfaithful to the Lord as Amos was accusing the north of being, well then they too could end up falling under the judgment of God. And so here we come to the second issue, that of what it means to speak of God's judgment. Particularly if God's judgment is understood in terms of violence and warfare. Here we are on Remembrance Sunday, and all through the First World War, and all through the Second World War, as Christian nation fought Christian nation, Christians on both sides prayed for victory, blessed their armaments with their priests, and believed that God was with them. Many people struggle with the image of God as a figure of judgment, whilst others seem to glory in it. For some of us, The idea that God visits violence and punishment on those who displease or disobey is contrary to our understanding of the very nature of God. But others take comfort in the idea that God is the one who will right all wrongs, punish the wicked and redeem the innocent. It's a complex issue. And it all rather depends on your view of God and of God's agency in the world. If you believe that God is an omnipotent being, imposing their will on the earth by divine diktat and backing it up with coercion and force, then yes, God's judgment is fierce and fiery. And certainly there were many in the ancient world who had this view of God, and we meet it in numerous places in the scriptures. But there is a counter-testimony to be heard here too, and it hinges on an alternative way of understanding God. The ancient Hebrew tradition used four letters to denote the name of God, a combination which was, to the best of our knowledge, unpronounceable. So when in our Bibles we find uh, references to God written as the Lord, with the word Lord written in lower capital letters, this is where in the Hebrew we would just meet the letters Y-H-W-H. And sometimes in some translations extra vowels are added to make it a bit more pronounceable, and so we get words like Yahweh or Jehovah coming in. You may remember from our sermon a few weeks ago with Moses on the mountain that we heard God give God's name as simply being I am. I am that which I am, said God in response to Moses' inquiry. well, who shall I say that you are? And I think there's a deep truth here in the ancient Hebrew tradition that God's name cannot be adequately expressed in human language. God simply is. And this affects the way we view God. And the way we view God affects the way we think about God's judgment. And so rather than thinking of God as a dictatorial character, a kind of heavenly version of an earthly king seeking to impose his will on the world. Perhaps we are invited instead to think of God as something utterly other to us as the source of all that is good in the world, as the origin of the eternal qualities of love and justice and righteousness that are the essential qualities for the flourishing of all life on earth, whether human or otherwise. If this is our view of God, that God is not like a heavenly human, but that God is other and is the source of all that tends and leads towards life, then the language of judgment can be heard differently. Because instead of being punishment for disobedience to an arbitrary deity's will, it is rather the consequences that occur whenever humans put themselves ahead of others, abusing the poor or indeed the planet. And so just as scientists issue their prophetic warnings to humanity that the continued release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere will result in suffering on a global scale. So with all those who are entrusted with a message of prophetic judgment to speak of God's judgment is not to say God's gonna get you. It is rather to say that those whose choices in life are in opposition to love and justice and righteousness, are sowing the seeds of their own destruction, because ultimately those essential qualities for flourishing are what will be found to be eternal. So when Amos proclaims God's judgment against the northern kingdom for their oppression of the poor, and tells them that no amount of fine musical worship or fragrant offerings will save them. He is simply telling them that their behaviour, that their oppression of others, is ultimately self-destructive. Because no empire that builds itself on a system of oppression will last forever. Because oppression is not an eternal quality of the eternal god justice is eternal righteousness is eternal and those who seek to be right with god without enacting justice are deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them so how are we to hear amos's message as it echoes down the millennia to us Northern Israel fell in due course to the Assyrians, and then some while after that, the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians. But the message of Amos was preserved, warning future generations of the dangers of hypocritical religion and its indifference to injustice. His message surfaces in the teaching of the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Romans, which we heard read earlier. As Paul paraphrased the teaching of Jesus, to care for the poor, to live peaceably with all, and to overcome evil with good. This is a timeless message, because the values of love, justice, and righteousness are themselves timeless. They are the essential qualities for human flourishing, and our faith, our religious practice, at its best, enables us to live out those values in the world. This is why as a church we take action on issues of justice, both locally and globally. It's why we welcome refugees. It's why we care about the climate crisis. It's why we work with others on issues such as homelessness, good employment practice, inclusion and peacemaking. It's why some of us will be going to the Quaker Meeting House this afternoon to talk about how Bloomsbury, together with other churches across the West End, can begin the journey towards becoming carbon neutral by 2030. Because unless we do these things, Amos might suggest to us that our faith is meaningless and that our inaction on injustice stands under judgment. Through the person of Jesus, we encounter God in humanity. And Jesus, like Amos, was a working-class outsider from the region of Bethlehem in Judea. And like Amos, Jesus too exposed the hypocrisy of religion that ignores the plight of the poor and perpetuates injustice. So as the people of God, as the body of Christ, we are called to be those in our time, who hold fast to these eternal qualities of justice and righteousness. We are called to be those who take seriously what it means for us to love our neighbour, to work for the flourishing of all, to reject populist ideologies of oppression, exclusion and indifference. And today, on Remembrance Sunday, We especially remember that we are called to be those who speak out for peace, in opposition to those narratives of nationalism that can so easily lead us back into conflict with others. As Paul put it, let us never seek to overcome evil with evil. Rather, let us overcome evil with good. This is the message of Amos, It is the message of Paul. It is the example of Christ, and it is our calling.
1: I'm going to invite our panelists up. I say up, our one panelist in the building up. I believe we have two more joining us from online. Nick and Tommaso. Hello. Hello. It's good to see you guys this morning. You too. Can you hear us? Yes. Can you hear us? We can't hear you yet. Are you both? Are they muted deliberately? No. Can you hear me? <laughs> well, I'm going to ask Roseanne mm-hmm. your thoughts to put you on the spot. Yeah. Um. And then we'll come back to these two. Uh,
0: so I am very impressed by Amos's bravery and his lack of imposter syndrome, the fact that he had the, the faith and the, the passion to go um, and give uh, a message that's, that's so different from so so challenging to, yeah. to people yeah. and that he just went and, and gave it when actually I think I, I struggle day to day with imposter syndrome and, and I think yeah that's very impressive and I love the last the last verse about justice flowing water and righteousness and I, I, I love that um,
1: yeah it is a beautiful image yes it's... have we anywhere else yet yes uh Nick Quith, I'll come to you first Yes, I'm not sure you can hear me. I, I can see that. that you can hear oh, you can hear? Yes. So, yeah, that was a beautiful message. I think um, when it comes to injustice and when you're physically in it, you forget that there's always a way out. And um, what Simon was saying, it um, I thought, was so powerful to think, oh, um, the, the message of Christ and um, the faith and love and trust and when you put in work that there will always be um a good result which is really really hard thing to think of um in the world that we live in that um at the end justice will be served and you, yeah yeah like that i love that like the idea that actually that this we can make a difference that there is um if we fight against injustice then justice will Happen, and that we that that good things can happen. Things and like the image of the river as being actually is quite I thing that's quite difficult to stop. I I grew up near um, a river called the Cookmere, which it's original rivers, It's winding. It's got lots of oxbow kind of, and they they couldn't stop it, so they they essentially cut it off and they made it straight. But it's just this idea, of this like that water can't be stopped. This river, this flow of justice can't be can't be stopped it might be people might try and divert it but it, it can't actually be stopped
0: and the, the push to respond to evil with kindness yeah I think if it can be so powerful if, if people have have done things and if you can find find the, the strength to respond with kindness and with love and to to try and change
1: what's out there I yeah. think that's incredibly powerful Tommaso,
3: what are your thoughts this morning? Hi, I hope you can hear me. We can
1: hear you, yes.
3: Great. So thank you Dawn and thank you Simon for your thought-provoking sermon. Um, As we recently celebrated the 60th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s preaching at Bloomsbury with a beautiful event Um, I just would like to take this opportunity to mention that Dr. King frequently referred to Hamus in his sermons and speeches, also praising him as an extremist for justice in his letter from Birmingham jail. And overall there's no doubt that Dr. King looked up to Hamus as role model and source of inspiration and indeed those who visit the beautiful civil rights memorial in montgomery alabama the place where dr king started his career as baptist minister Uh, we'll find this very passage amos Ward's on justice rolling down like waters as paraphrased by dr king engraved on the memorial's black wall it has been chosen as the most Iconic quote to commemorate Dr. King, as well as other 40 civil rights activists and ordinary people including children who died because of violent resistance to desegregation from 1954 to 1968. So I believe it is worth remembering that the excerpt we heard today has a long history and meant something special to people who battled against racial oppression and injustice in a relatively recent past. In terms of content, um, I'll be very brief, but the one element that struck me the most is Amos' condemnation of what we may call the ritualistic drift of religion, is disregard for the offerings and the noise of the songs, for instance, Which is so powerful and compelling in my view for it really captures how external worship from time to time can stand in the way of justice and hamper the development of more ethical living within a community i suppose that not only churches but all sorts of organizations wrestled with this issue how to establish certain conventions which have great symbolic significance and therefore are important. but also how to prevent these conventions and formalities from obstructing the pursuit of higher goals and standards.
1: I see, that's now, I'm when afraid when there's, I to, sorry Thomas, I was just thinking that's when they're listening to the other voices to yep. margin, to the, to the new voices, to those that challenge, to Amos, to Martin Luther King, to, to the voices that are out there now challenging those that hold power, hold those institutions that want to continue how things have always been. That's, that's how we change things. I, 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 for me, I was thinking this morning about what voices is it that we need to be listening to? What voices that appear new and different should we be giving weight to? in our institutions, in our church, in our world.
4: Before we pray, I just have to add my own comment. Um, The story of Amos takes me back to when I used to spend at least one morning a week on the hillside outside Tekoa, monitoring the school children trying to go to school and having to pass the line of heavily armed Israeli soldiers. They had to do this every day. We were there once a week. And being on the slopes of Tekoa was such a strong message um, that justice is still needed in the land. So I just have to add that um, to the comments from the sermon. So we'll now turn to pray, and I invite you to share in our prayers. When I say, in your mercy, please respond with, hear our prayer. Almighty God, thank you that you are unchanging. And so we do not need to be fearful, even though everything around us changes we put our trust in you as we pray for the world, for our church, and for ourselves. In your mercy, hear our prayer. Merciful God, on this Remembrance Sunday, we remember all those who have lost their lives as a result of war. Mostly young soldiers, who went to serve and never returned. We remember those injured by war or terror and for those psychologically wounded by the horrors of war. We think of the dedicated service of our armed forces over the generations and we thank you for their testimony which reminds us of the tragedy of conflict. In your mercy, hear our prayer. God of peace, your son warned us of wars and rumors of war. We pray for places where there is war or impending conflict, where there is violence or oppression where people live in fear for their lives. Give those with power the wisdom, courage, and clarity of judgment to end the destruction. We pray for those who campaign for peace, who seek to encourage reconciliation and non-violent resolutions to conflict. Raise up people to declare that there can be another way. Bring healing to communities. Forgiveness where there is hurt. Compassion where there is hatred. Love where there is fear. In your mercy, hear our prayer. God of compassion, give strength to all caught up in disasters, all who are suffering from famine or flood, storms or earthquakes. Bless the endeavors of relief agencies as they work tirelessly to help, often under dangerous conditions. And we pray especially for the war-torn countries of Afghanistan, Sudan, and Ethiopia. And in a moment of quiet, I invite you to bring silently before God the name of any country that may be lying heavily on your heart. In your mercy, hear our prayer. God of creation, We marvel at our planet and all that you have provided for us to enjoy and nurture, but we recognize how fragile it is. Keep us from making disasters worse by our failure to respect our world and its resources. We pray that all discussions, promises, decisions, and those decisions yet to be activated following COP26, Will have a positive and lasting impact, binding us together with a sense of urgency and a determination to make a difference for the good of all. In your mercy, hear our prayer. God of love, we ask for your blessing on our church and those in our neighbourhoods those who are struggling to make ends meet, those suffering with their mental health, the frail, the elderly, and the housebound, those in care homes, hospices, and those undergoing treatment. And we remember those who care for them and all who bring material and spiritual comfort at times of need. In your mercy, hear our prayer. As we face the week ahead, we ask for your presence and guidance with us, whatever actions and activities we may be involved in and whoever we may encounter on the way. Merciful God, accept these prayers for the sake of your Son, our risen Saviour, Jesus Christ, amen.